This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're talking about declaring personal bankruptcy, a step-by-step process. Boy, you know, it's kind of a scary title, isn't it, Blair? I, I know that I, whenever I see those words, I kind of think, oh, gosh, it must be awful. And, and the cool thing about Sands & Associates is, is that you guys go out of your way to make it I don't know if I want to say an easier process, but certainly it's easier on you to do the process. There's very step-by-step way of doing it, and um, I think it's how you guys uh, do it so well, that sound, how, how well Sands & Associates does this work. Yeah, Elaine, it's something that we take so much pride in um, is the idea that, you know, it's not our place to, to judge anybody, um, you know, just because you've got a debt problem, just because you might need to, to declare a personal bankruptcy. That often says nothing about your moral character, your worth as an individual. Um, so, but uh, that word itself is just so wrought with emotion. You know, even if you think about watching Wheel of Fortune in your life, what do you not want to do? Well, you don't want to land on the bankrupt. <laughs> square exactly. Where, you know, you've, just, you've just lost everything. Uh, so people assume, you know, whether it's just the end pop culture or, or something that they've heard that, you know, bankruptcy is the worst possible thing you could do. Avoid it at all costs. It's the end of your life. Um, and it's generally the opposite is true. Bankruptcy allows you to put a stop um, to what's probably the worst period of your life if you owe a bunch of money that you can't repay. And it gives you the chance to start over again. So far from being the end of something, it's a new beginning. It's a means of starting over, uh, of really having a second chance. Um, and, you know, the government created this legislation to allow, you know, for people to take risks. You know, if an entrepreneur uh, was never able to take a risk that a business might fail, well, we wouldn't have such a, you know, a rich tapestry of small business in Canada because as soon as one failed, that would be the end of that person, you know, forever. So, you know, the government wants people to be able to take risks, take, you know, reasonable economic risks, wants, you know, if life intervenes, that you're able to move forward and not be stuck paying back your debts for the rest of your life. Um, you know, we did away with debtors' prisons hundreds of years ago in Western civilization. But even that, you know, even that that misconception, you know, people often think, well, you know, when's the police showing up? When am I going to be thrown in jail for these debts? So there's just so many myths and misconceptions that can often scare people from reaching out for help. You know, sometimes I, I describe my job, which, you know, and people are they kind of wrinkle, wrinkle their forehead sometimes when, they, when I say, you know, my job is I give good news just about every single day because mm-hmm. people come in thinking they need to go bankrupt. And I either explain to them that, you know, bankruptcy is not as bad as you think and it's going to really help solve their problem. And they breathe just a huge sigh of relief um, or I'm able to help them avoid doing a bankruptcy by looking at a consumer proposal or some other options. So just by dispelling that fear, dispelling a bit of the stigma, uh, it's just going to help you know, anybody struggling with debt to try to reach out from help that much sooner. Okay. Well, let's start by, can you explain um, what a bankruptcy is, who might qualify uh, to declare bankruptcy, and the kind of debts that it addresses? And it's a big topic, I know, but let's, can we start there? Yeah, yeah, so exactly. So bankruptcy, it's a legal debt remedy. It's enshrined in federal law that gives you the ability to eliminate virtually all of your debts. 
So anything from credit card debts, consumer debts, lines of credit, even mortgage shortfalls, taxes, GST debts, student loans, ICBC, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, bankruptcy is the legal remedy that's available when somebody finds themselves in a position where they're just not able to pay their debts. And that can mean, you know, if they were to sell their property, it wouldn't be enough to pay off all of their debts. Um, or they're able to make all of their minimum payments, but they just know they're never going to be able to pay this debt off in full. And that's the term of being called insolvent. Insolvent means essentially that you're not able to pay your debts in full. And that's what makes you eligible to file a bankruptcy. Now, the option and decision to file a bankruptcy is yours. So I've never seen anybody forced into a bankruptcy. And conversely, I've never seen anybody prevented from filing a bankruptcy. You don't need to get permission from anybody. There's no throwing yourself upon the court and seeking their mercy. Uh, it's your right as someone who owes more debt than they're able to pay back to get relief, to get the support of a trustee, and to achieve a financial fresh start going through the bankruptcy process. Okay. So what... Um, what do you, how, how do you become eligible to file for uh, personal bankruptcy or to qualify to be able to mm -hmm. file for personal bankruptcy? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. You need to owe at least $1,000, and that's an amount that hasn't changed since the first law was written in the Great Depression. So $1,000 used to be a ton. You know, now most people probably owe $1,000, but nobody goes bankrupt for owing just that amount. But sometimes for five or $10,000, it can be insurmountable depending on somebody's income. So you have to owe at least $1,000 and not be able to pay that debt as it becomes due. So that's essentially it. Now, it doesn't mean just because you're not able to pay your debts, you're automatically bankrupt. Some people will be in a situation where they're not able to pay their debts. You know, years can go by and they continue to tread water. But it's when they take the positive step of meeting with the trustee, um, sitting down and filing the bankruptcy documents, that's when they can start to get relief and start to get that debt legally discharged, which that's the point of a bankruptcy proceeding is you file the documents, you go through a bankruptcy proceeding, and we'll talk about all of what that means, and it's probably shorter and easier than most people think. And then at the end of the proceeding, you receive what's called a discharge certificate, which leaves all of your debt in the past and allows you to move on into the future. And if you become wildly successful, or maybe when you become wildly successful, unburdened by this debt, you're not required to go back and pay back any of the debt that was discharged during the bankruptcy process. Okay. What's the first step in starting that process, Blair? Yeah, so some people think you need to sit down, find yourself an insolvency lawyer, give them a retainer, pay some upfront fees. Uh, none of that's the case in Canada. So in Canada, you sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee, you know, virtually these days, either over the telephone or over video call. Um, and the LIT is going to discuss with you all of your financial options. So step one is, is to reach out for help, I guess, to make that call and to say that you want to meet with the trustee. And then often, same day, next day, or as soon as you're, you're ready to do so, you'll have the first confidential debt consultation. Uh, the trustee is going to start by listening, by understanding, well, what's your situation? What's brought you to this point? Uh, what's your family situation? What's your income, your budget? Uh, and just to see, well, what are the options that are available to you? Uh, a trustee's job is to be an honest, um, impartial officer of the court, uh, which means essentially our job is to tell you all of your options and to give you the opportunity to execute on whichever option you choose. So the first meeting is going to be all talking about what's the situation, what the options are, exist for you, and then you're going to leave with the ability to make a decision on whether bankruptcy is right for you uh, or not. And you pay nothing for that meeting. It's confidential. You going to see a trustee doesn't have any impact on your credit rating. You know, your neighbors don't know about it, all of those, those fears that people have. It's a confidential way of figuring out, you know, what are your options to get out of debt. 
Now, I, I assume sort of the second meeting is where you start to fill in the blanks and, and do the paperwork? Mm-hmm, exactly. So at the first meeting, usually at the conclusion, we'd say, okay, well, if you choose to go forward, um, you know, it used to be in the office, we'd hand you a paper application form and help you fill it out. Uh, now with online, we direct you to our web-based application form. You'd fill in some information, take photos of, you know, your pay stubs, your debt statements, give us the information, whatever format works for you. Um, and then we'd review everything with you saying, well, based on your income and the amount of the debt, if you were to file for personal bankruptcy, it would run for a nine-month term. You'd be required to pay $200 a month for those nine months. You'd be required to come for two financial counseling sessions. You know, we'd file your taxes. Um, Are you okay with that? Do you want to go forward? And the reason why you'd want to go forward is at the end of all of that, you owe nobody anything. You've got a fresh start. You can rebuild your credit and you don't need to worry ever again about these debts. So the second meeting is going to be filling in all the gaps and getting the paperwork done. Uh, the third meeting, so typically it's three times you'll meet with the trustee to start the proceeding. The third meeting is when you execute on those bankruptcy documents. So you sit down or we do a screen share these days. We review all the documents with you. Um, you're going to swear a couple of oaths saying, yep, these are my debts to the best of my knowledge. These are my assets. This is my budget. And then the trustee is going to take all of those documents and register with the government and then notify everybody that you owe money to that there's now a trustee on the job and they've got to deal directly with the trustee. They're prohibited from even calling you. They can't call you and give you grief for filing bankruptcy. They can't take you to court. They're not even allowed to send you any further statements. Everything's got to stop once you file the bankruptcy. You get you know, kind of a financial ceasefire, which can remove just a whole lot of stress that people are carrying about. And that can happen pretty quickly, can't it? Yeah, it could all happen in the space of a couple of days. If it's urgent and someone's having their wages seized, we can stop that and get things filed quickly. Uh, you know, it's a serious decision. So some people decide they want to, you know, think about it for a couple of weeks, have a couple of meetings, ask a lot of questions. We're totally fine with any pace. We're just there when you need us. Okay, great. And before we talk about step three, I just want to throw in the website again, uh, sands-trustee.com. If this is making sense to you and you want to take those first steps and you just want a few more questions answered that we, that possibly we'll, we will answer or won't answer in this segment, uh, 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number. So step three, working, actually working through the bankruptcy process. Exactly. So when you file for bankruptcy, you stop paying all of your debts. You don't have any responsibility to those creditors anymore, but you do have a set of responsibilities to the trustee. So the trustee is going to be really clear with you because they've got the same objective. They want you to get through this smoothly and on time. So most bankruptcies will run for nine months. You know, some will run for a year longer than that, 21 months if you're not low income. Nowhere near the seven years most people think. And what happens during those nine or 21 months um, is you're going to complete two private one-on-one financial counseling sessions. And I get calls so often from clients who say this was the most valuable part of the proceeding. You know, leaving the debt behind was one thing, but then learning how credit ratings work, learning how to set up a good budget, learning how to set financial goals and save to achieve them, you know, that can be some life-changing knowledge. So you're going to attend two of those sessions uh, with the LIT or with the counselor, focusing on financial literacy and really trying to make sure it's only one time you need to do either a bankruptcy or a proposal. The counseling is in both remedies. Uh, Another thing you're going to do beyond the counseling is you're going to track your household income and your expenses. You're going to submit a monthly budget form called an income and expense statement. And that's how the licensed insolvency trustee is going to calculate what you have to pay back in the bankruptcy. 
So if you're considered low income, and that depends on your family size, but a single person is about $2,200, you're going to submit budgets to the trustee showing that you're earning that amount. You're going to show you're living within your means each month. uh, And then you've completed your second duty of the bankruptcy by providing those nine budgets. Um, The rest of the bankruptcy is largely just cooperating with the trustee. So the trustee has to file your income tax returns up to date, get you caught up if you're a few years behind. So you just need to cooperate and give the information and then keep us informed of your current address. Um, The final thing is you just make some payments. You know, trustee will withdraw from your bank account once per month. For most cases, it's $200 per month uh, over the nine-month period. And then at the end of that proceeding, you're absolved from all of your debt. That's pretty, that's pretty significant. I, and it always astounds me when you talk about the length of time that it takes and the ease of which it can all happen. Now, I, I'm not trying to, to uh, say anything. Uh, we know how emotional and how challenging and how difficult all of this feels. But I got to say that Sands and Associates and all my dealings with Blair doing the show over the years is these people are good and they're thoughtful and they're kind and they're going to listen to you and sort of shepherd you through this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Steve Fruitman on the line with us. He's one of the founding partners of Magellan Law. It's a leading firm of lawyers based in Langley. Now, Steve specializes in business law as well. His areas of practice include corporate, commercial, securities, pensions and benefits, as well as trust law. And he's got a really interesting background as well, which includes economics. So he's a really great guy to talk about what's going on today uh, for folks that are wanting to set up businesses. What's the best way of doing it? Do you incorporate? Do you not? All that kind of stuff. Uh, So for this segment, we're going to talk about um, something that we're thinking about that has a lot of misunderstandings around it. It's called Corporate Law 101. Uh, Really want to start at the basics to help anybody listening who's considering how you should set up a business and whether or not you should incorporate, which is a really good question to ask because I know that that comes across. People have these uh, great dreams of starting something and then it's like, oh, there's an avalanche of questions and, and sort of the legal side of things. And uh, this segment's all about trying to make that as clear as possible. So thanks, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the very basics. What is a corporation? And I want to add to that, why should we set up one if we're wanting to set to start a business? I think it's a great question. It's not always a slam dunk that you want to do that. Um, but there's a number, you know, I could drill it down to two key factors in terms of whether or not you want a corporation. A corporation is a separate legal entity. And what that means is, you know, we have the ability to do business as ourselves, as sole proprietors. And as such, you know, if it was uh, Steve Fruitman uh, carrying on business, there would be no distinction between my, uh, my business and myself. So if I get myself into trouble in my business and someone decides they're going to sue me, then my personal assets, my home, my car, my uh, investments are all exposed to, um, you know, to potential business losses. Fair enough. So for that, for that reason, a lot of uh, business owners will want to go through a little bit of extra cost. It's not huge, but of setting up a corporation, which is a separate legal entity, and they'll run their business through the corporation. 
So if they get themselves into trouble with creditors or someone is suing the business, um, their personal assets aren't exposed, just the business assets, just the investment that they've made in the company. Fair enough. So it sounds like a corporation, the primary means, you know, is to, is to limit your liability, as you said, and, and give some separation. Um, and now, Steve, for folks that are listening out there, they probably heard a bunch of terms thrown around. The two that are really important would be a shareholder and a director. Can we talk about what does it mean to be a shareholder and director? Can it be the same person? Does it have to be those types of questions? That's a great question, Blair. It can absolutely be the same person. In small, closely held businesses, it typically is. But simply put, a shareholder, you know, I refer to them as investors. They're, you know, you want to invest in, say, Apple. Um, you buy shares, and you may end up getting uh, some of the profits of Apple. Um, but you don't run the company. Um, you elect, uh, collectively, directors to run the company, to manage the company for you. So in closely uh, held businesses, you uh, own the shares of your company, and you typically vote for yourself as a director, but it's important to know which hat you're wearing because shareholders, as we mentioned earlier, are protected from liability um, by running through a, their business through a company. Directors can be exposed to some liability, um, typically for areas of failing to pay taxes, uh, corporate taxes, uh, employee remittances, GST, PST, and the such. So important to know the distinction. So we've already talked about that setting up a corporation it protects your personal uh, liability or that umbrella. So is that the number one reason why people choose to incorporate businesses? Elaine, that's a great question. From, from my world, from my perspective, absolutely. But I recognize that there's other business advisors um, that, you know, uh, contribute to the decision-making matrix, um, like accountants, for instance. And the taxation of uh, different business structures is also a factor. So sometimes you'll, you'll have uh, various accounting uh, advisors uh, say, I think, you know, until you hit a critical mass, you might not be ready for incorporation. Uh, from my world, I say it depends on the level of risk. If you were setting up a book club, then, you know, maybe I would agree. If you were running a, a skydiving school, then I would think maybe you want to think about incorporation. <laughs> yeah, fair <Right>. enough. <laughs> now, now, Steve, we talked on the show just very briefly, but about some of federal government um, tax changes that are going to affect small business owners. What can you tell us about those? Blair, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. For years, um, business owners were able to structure their affairs in such a way that members of the family were able to invest in the business. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if my wife and I both thought that Apple was a good investment, we'd both buy shares of Apple and would reap the benefits of uh, the company doing well. We could also invest uh, in our business venture, our, our family's business venture, and um, Traditionally, from you know 1970 uh, on to about a year ago, we were able to structure our affairs in such a way that you know, both spouses could benefit from ownership of a family business. That's changed dramatically, and the tax rules of putting money away for business owners for retirement and uh, for um, investing in your own corporation, that's changed dramatically and, uh, and really requires a lot of legal and, uh, and tax advice at this point. So if someone's got a corporation and they're not aware of these changes, they should be phoning up their lawyer or phoning up Magellan Law and saying, hey, let's, let's explain and understand how these are going to impact me, right? Absolutely. And typically the people that would be uh, really interested in that conversation are people that might have holding companies, uh, maybe family trusts, uh, and, uh, and have set up the corporation to have various family members work in or invest in the company. Is it ever a good idea not to incorporate, Steve? 
Um, it really, you know, a lot of that depends from a legal perspective. I really like that structure, um, and I don't find it too complicated. But from tax uh, perspective, sometimes partnerships might be the better way to go. Uh, and there might be situations where running a business as a sole proprietorship is absolutely uh, is absolutely fine. So it's really it really depends on the circumstances, and and it's hard to give a, a you know a, an answer that covers off all circumstances. Sure, fair enough. I get that. Now we wanted to talk about some key resources, and you had a um, a piece that you wanted to mention about the cannabis industry, which is something that uh, Magellan Law is uh, advising and counseling folks on. Thanks, Elaine. Yeah, um, one of the key resources that I always want to talk about is you have your lawyers, accountants, bankers, and other financial advisors such as Blair. Um, it's critical that you um, value or try to value what you can get from these professionals versus a do-it-yourself approach. You know, Google is a, a great resource out there, but you can't replicate the years of training and practical experience um, of, uh, of a qualified lawyer. Uh, it may seem cheaper in the short term, but in the long term, uh, it's really not worth the, uh, the effort. And one of the examples that I wanted to give is we have a, uh, a very, um, uh, very great uh, cannabis practice right now. And one of the things that's happening in the province of BC is we're getting people applying for retail cannabis licenses. And uh, to date, there's been 229 applications made to the province only um, only a handful of those have gone through to the next stage. 63 of them have been sent back as incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um, contrast that with what Magellan has been doing. Uh, we've submitted now three of those applications. Two of them have gone to the next stage, and the third one is just getting some tweaks uh, and should be there shortly. So a high level of success uh, and often ends up uh, you know, being worth the, uh, the investment in the end. Yeah, and I would think that uh, the cannabis industry, it's, it just feels like it's such a, not fluid, but it's something that we don't, not everybody knows everything about uh, uh, compared to if you're setting up a grocery store or a little retail outlet. This is a whole other area. Absolutely, Elaine. And some of the challenges is the the regulators and the people working at uh, uh, you know for the government you know haven't gone through this yet. Exactly. So, you know, well, the rules are are out. They're being developed. They're being you know refined as uh, as time goes by. And it's really uh, it, you know they're just as challenged as we are on this end. So everyone's kind of working together to make this. Uh, as smooth as possible. Yeah, and figure and figure it out. Listen, if any of this information resonates with you and you want more information from Steve, uh, Steve Fruitman is who we've been talking to. Magellan Law is the name of the company. It's uh, based in Langley, a leading law firm out there. Here's the website, MagellanLaw.ca. Nice and easy. Listen, you're, oh, you're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is called Choosing a Debt Advisor. And I know there's some points and some key questions uh, that we want to ask when we're trying to get some professional debt assistance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I know, Blair, that you deal uh, with these questions every day. Let's talk about the key questions that... Um, that people either uh, would benefit 
from knowing before they go in to see you or ones that get covered when they come in and see you? Yeah, so, so exactly. So first off, you know, when, when I'm dealing with a client, I know typically they're not having the best day of their life, right? They're mm-hmm. typically, they're feeling pretty bad about their debts. Sometimes they're hopeless about the future. You know, perhaps they've just lost their job or they've, you know, uh, become divorced or someone's gotten sick. Those are all really classic reasons why someone would have a debt problem. So usually if they're in that moment, they're not even thinking about the questions to ask, right? They're just so focused on surviving another moment um, that they're very vulnerable um, to, you know, not everybody is as ethical and as able to help you as Sands and Associates is. So if you don't go through and ask the right questions all the way along, sometimes you might think you're actually solving this problem, getting yourself through a dark time. You might be just paying money for nothing and being taken advantage of again. So for today, let's talk what are the key questions, what are the answers that you need to be listening for um, to really, if it's you in the situation or if it's a loved one, to help them know when they're going to get help. Great. So what are the key what are the key questions? What should yeah. I what would be of benefit for me to have sort of in the back of my hand mm-hmm. or head or written down when I walk in? Yeah, so absolutely number one question, is the advisor licensed to help you? And that's absolutely huge. So my job, it's right in the title, I'm a licensed insolvency trustee. That license comes from the federal government. It comes from Industry Canada that oversees my regulator. And what it means is that this is a license the federal government gives out. They don't give it out lightly. There's about a thousand trustees in Canada. There's less than a hundred in BC. Um, Each year, there's maybe two or three new trustees that qualify. So it's one of the more elite, more difficult type of qualifications to have. And if you're licensed, it means you have the authority. You have the authority to protect somebody. You have the authority to reduce somebody's debt. And by protect, I mean stop all the collection calls, stop their wages from being taken, stop their assets from being seized. So it's absolutely critical that you ask the person, are you licensed? And if they say, oh yeah, I'm licensed, well, who are you licensed by? And if it's not the federal government, if it's some you know industry body or association of various professionals, that's another indication. Maybe you want to ask a couple extra questions. Yeah, and I know it's not exactly part of what we were going to talk about in this segment, but those folks that are doing that work, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes who they are either paid by or representing will surprise you. Can you talk about that for just a moment? Oh, of course. Yeah. So if if you were to think, you know, um, sometimes it's the most touchy-feely advertisements you've ever seen. Sometimes it's for a not-for-profit charity, a counseling organization. Quite often, a lot of those are paid 100% by the people that you owe money to. So essentially, if we strip off all of the veneer, and this is the same in in Ontario, many counseling organizations are actually registered as collection agents because that's the function that they perform. So you might think you're working with a credit counselor, you're working with a not-for-profit organization, but really look under the covers, figure out who's paying the bills, how are they funded, and generally I'm a big fan of follow the money, and who's funding them is typically who's writing the ticket, who's saying how things are going to be done, and your objectives are typically quite different than the people that you owe money to if you're facing that crisis situation. Your objective is to to preserve some quality of life to get yourself back on your feet. Your creditor's objectives are to get 100% of their debt back and to lose as little as possible. And if you're getting advice from somebody who's funded by those creditors, you might not be getting the impartial advice you deserve. Okay, let's talk about the fees then, because that's 
uh, way up there, right? If you've got the right person or you've got to figure out if you've got the right person that's helping you, mm-hmm. what are they going to charge you? Yeah, you need to have absolute transparency on fees. So as a licensed insolvency trustee, everything I do is black and white. It's in the law. So if you have to file for a bankruptcy, you don't pay any fees when you meet with me for the first, you know, three, four, whatever times we need to figure out what the option is. It's when I help you execute on an option, whether it's a bankruptcy or a proposal, you start to pay then based on what the government says you have to pay. And again, everything is fully transparent. There's a government tariff that says, you know, if you file for bankruptcy and you're low income, you're going to pay $200 a month for nine months. That's it. That's all. No extra fees, no extra administrative costs, nothing like that. If you do a consumer proposal, the government says, okay, the trustee is going to receive a portion of what you pay back. It's all set by government tariff and there's no upfront fees there either. So if you sit down with me and we meet a bunch of times to file a proposal and we figure out the proposal is going to be $200 a month, the day we sign the proposal, we generally say, okay, let's make the first proposal payment. We'll just continue on after there. So you really have to be careful. Are you paying fees that are regulated, that are codified in law, that you're guaranteed to get a result from? Or are you paying fees to an unlicensed organization where it's to cover overhead, to cover administrative costs? Um, you know, sometimes there's even extra fees like, you know, credit monitoring or credit repair fees or, or different things that, you know, essentially do nothing for you. But because there's no regulation essentially outside of, of trustees, the amount of fees and the nature of those fees are essentially unlimited and there's no guarantee that you get any value for them. And the debt settlement agencies, that's a, a term that you that you use once in a while. Yeah. Now, how do they differ from what we've already talked about? Yeah, so debt settlement, um, to me, is one of the most buyer beware type of um, engagements you, you'd want to get involved in or not get involved in. The way debt settlement works is they say to you, an individual who maybe owes a bunch of money to people, stop paying all of your debts. Just stop, full stop, okay? And what we want you to do instead is take that money you are going to pay on those debts and pay it to us instead the debt settlement agency. And what they say is that money that you were going to pay on the debts, we're going to take part of that as our fees. And for the first few months, it's 100% of it as their fees. So they get paid regardless of a result. They're taking their fees up front. So your debtors haven't received anything from you. And they're probably still calling you, you know, left, right, and center. But if you call the debt settlement agent, they just say, oh, ignore those calls. You'll never get sued until you are sued. But anyway, that's another story here. Yeah. Um, So you're paying fees every month. And then theoretically, what's going to happen is after probably two three years or so, the debt settlement agency is going to go to the people that you owe money to and say, hey, you haven't heard from Joe for two years. How would you like to settle on his debt for 20 or 30% of the total payable tomorrow? Sometimes the creditors will say yes, but very often they'll say, no, we don't deal with you. You're not regulated. We have no you know, authority to, to accept what you're saying here. So quite often the debt settlement agency will then say, well, we got all of our fees. We're going to return your savings to you, less some more administrative costs. And then what have you done? You've treaded water for two years. You paid probably thousands of dollars to somebody who couldn't help you. All your creditors are now severely delinquent, and perhaps you're getting sued. You're getting your wages taken or your assets seized. So debt settlement can be one of the worst experiences ever. Now, it's definitely less prevalent than it has been in the past few years. So if we were three or four years ago, I was seeing people every week. You know, there were these very slick ads on the radio. Alan Thicke of Growing Pains Fames was one of the the key endorsers there. Rest in peace, Alan Thicke. Rest in peace, (laughs) but be careful on who you endorse because you will be remembered for it. Right. Um, Yeah. So 
you know, there was a bunch of, of really t- tough advertisements out there, you know, with trusted people saying, you know, you can yes. trust us. We're going to restructure your debt. I had people in my office every single week about that. Wow. So now the BC government, and I'm proud Sands and Associates was a big lobby to get, to get this changed. They put in regulation to protect clients from debt settlement. But a really key thing is a lot of these companies are offshore. They're in the U.S. They're doing things over the phone. They're not subject to this regulation. Okay. So very much buyer beware. All right. That's re- that's a really good point. As opposed to um, the the uh, licensed insolvency trustee like Blair, regulated, you know what you're going to pay, and you ha- there's a clear plan as to how you're going to get out of debt, which is it's just the best the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so we've already sort of answered this question about mm-hmm. advisors protecting people from their creditors or collection agents. Yep. If you owe money, you're going to get those calls or, and they can also uh, garnish your wages, yeah. all those things. So it feels, yeah, again, a, a, a somebody like you, a licensed insolvency trustee, you're the one that's actually going to help me in the end. Oh, yes. I mean, I really, I, I just feel that's really important to repeat. Yeah. And, and let's be clear about, you know, the why behind it. So the why is because the federal government backs me. The federal government has legislation that I'm empowered to enforce, which says as soon as you're dealing with me, it's illegal for you to get more collection calls. It's illegal for any lawsuits to continue. If you're being sued, you know, tomorrow and you file bankruptcy today, gee, that all stops. So it's full protection, you know, to give you the time that you need to restructure. And it's a guaranteed, it's a part of the whole process here is what's called the stay of proceedings. If you're dealing with somebody that's not licensed, they might be able to negotiate with, you know, four of the five people that you owe money to saying, hey, we're going to get you all your money back, but, you know, just hold off on the collection calls, but they'll never be able to do it with government debt. So if you owe student loans or income taxes, they're going to opt out of anything an unlicensed advisor can do. And there's no guarantee that all the creditors are going to stay, you know, at bay. They're going to give you the breathing room. Anybody could opt out at any time and choose to sue you to take assets, to seize wages or different things like that. And I like uh, the piece for that, that comes with dealing with you or Sands and Associates or a licensed insolvency trustee is at the end of the day, when you come, to, when you've written your proposal or your bankruptcy uh paper that Mm -hmm. says this is how much money you're going to pay back it is often what's the percentage of what you actually owe at the end of the day yeah quite often it's 20 to 30 percent that's what you have to pay back in a proposal which is extraordinary and that that is just like almost the core of the debt it's no Mm -hmm. interest it's none of that stuff that stuff stops right away and that when i first started hearing that from you i i thought my gosh what a relief that is for folks yeah the first time i heard it i thought i must have read something wrong here you know that this is too good to be true this program can't exist and i remember as my my sister was in having some debt problems at the time and i saw wow this this person owed 20 grand in, in consumer debt. They were able to do a proposal for 6,000. The person paid it off in three years and moved on. I was like, well, I wish I could have helped my sister with that at, at that time, you right. know? So it was really kind of family things that taught me about the, you know, consumer proposals and they exist, but it's really the case. It's not too good to be true. It exists, but people just need to know about it. And the total amount that you're going to pay as well. I really like that, that, yeah. that monthly, that monthly amount for however long it is. And there's yeah. a limit in, in that in terms of the length 
length of time that it takes to pay it off too is was really reassuring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the maximum time in a proposal is going to be five years, and most of them are done much sooner. Usually, you know, two to four years paying off a reduced amount, dealing with somebody that's fully licensed that can protect you. And a little aside here: if you go into a, a debt advisor and they say, "Oh, well, here's our business license," that's not the same thing. It's not <laughs> no. a business license. No, this is a federal government license to help you with your debt. Only a trustee possesses it. And you and the people that you work with are very, I mean, you especially being a licensed insolvency trustee in terms of credited, you have gone through, um, I I know you've told me before. Oh, it's years and years. Years of of education to do this work. Mm -hmm. And and that's not something to be kind of laughed at. I mean, that's really significant. It is to me when I I first heard that. Mm -hmm. You actually know what you're doing and you have the power and authority to create a situation for somebody which is just uh, tiny compared to what they've walked in with. Yeah, it's people's entire lives and we know that and we take it serious and we're so proud that we're able to help thousands of, of BC residents every year turn things around completely. Very good. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents, Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Their mantra is helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we've talked about or anything that's resonating with you or for someone you know, sands-trustee.com is the website. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about uh, seniors and seniors struggling uh, with debts well into their retirement. And it's something that you're seeing more of, more folks struggling? Yeah, every year that's a demographic in our practice that just goes up and up. So most recent research um, for us in 2017, a full 35% of people that came to see us were age 55 and older. And obviously at that type of age, you're probably contemplating retirement, if not in retirement. Our age range goes as high as often 90 years old. We have wow. people coming in, you know, really still struggling with debt. So, oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, and there's a lot of research that's out there. The Vanier Institute, you know, very well-respected um, think tank, they figured out that a senior today is 19 times more likely to need the help of a trustee to file either a bankruptcy or a proposal than they were just 20 years ago. Now, is there is there a, a consensus as to why that is? There's a confluence of factors here. You know, we talk a lot about the cost of living. Um, you know, a lot of it comes down to people just not finishing their working life and being debt-free. So they've either continued to accumulate debt in retirement um, or the debt that they've had, it just it hasn't went away. They're making minimum payments, which just don't, don't draw down the value. Uh, quite often, there's a phenomenon on of really trying to help out um, both their kids and their grandkids as well. So really supporting two further generations as opposed to just one, um, especially as kids and grandkids today have a tougher time entering the workforce, saving money, earning a really good wage. Sometimes elderly parents still feel that type of a responsibility to help out even two subsequent generations. Yeah, or, or they just so want to. Yeah. So want to. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it doesn't make any sense to do that. So we've got a couple of case studies, which is great. So Mm -hmm. again, this is a perfect opportunity if if you're listening and and this sounds like, oh, this could be my situation or I know somebody in this situation. So the first one is uh, a couple. 
Yeah, so we'll, we'll call them John and, and Jane. And I discussed these. I was giving a presentation to a group of seniors last week, and there were a lot of nodding heads in the room saying, yeah, I could see you know, either my circle of friends or family, someone facing a similar situation. Uh, so John and Jane, John is 70 years old and retired, and Jane is 76 years old and retired. Um, their debts, so John owed about $18,000 when he came to see us, um, and Jane owed about $56,000. And these were all consumer debts. So you know, there were no mortgages or car loans. This was uh, mainly credit cards and a line of credit as well. Okay. Um, the assets that they had were a 2006 vehicle, um, you know, worth less than $5,000, so nothing that could ever be seized from them. They had some household furnishings and still a small RRSP. Um, they ended up filing a bankruptcy and they did not lose any of their assets in the bankruptcy. Okay. Um, the circumstances that got them to seeing us, um, again, is I think interesting here. Um, so John and Jane were living in Ontario and in 2013, John's employment ended and ended unexpectedly due to health issues. Um, he was unable to work. Um, they decided to sell their home and they moved to BC to be closer to family. Which makes sense, mm-hmm. which makes really good sense, get close to family. But British Columbia is an incredibly expensive place depending on where you're going yeah. uh, and depending on where you left in Ontario. Yeah, yeah, you hit the nail on the difference. head there, Elaine. Big difference. Because they sold their house, and the house took almost a year to sell. So during that time, there was no income coming in. Yeah. Um, but when they finally did sell it, they received proceeds of about $129,000, uh, which they partially used for moving costs and for setting up their new place in BC, and then um, to clear some of the debt they had to accumulate in the year when the house didn't sell. But 129000 they felt pretty good at that point. They thought they, they could manage things through. Wow. Now, the challenge is once they moved to BC and found out how expensive it was, um, their money went to just pay the minimum payments on their debts for four years since they had arrived here and to help with some living expenses. Um, they approached us when the money had ran out. So the full 129000 had all been used up and they realized they couldn't meet their minimum payments on just their pension incomes. So they're still paying into their pension at that point. Is that what you, is that oh, no. what you mean? Their pension's paying them. Their pension's paying them. Yeah. So what they were getting wasn't enough to cover their costs. Exactly. Okay. So their, right. their combined income was about $3,000 for the family of two, um, but it just wasn't enough to clear the minimum payments on their debts, which again, it was eighteen and 56000 so about you know $74,000 of total debts. They just right. weren't able to keep up, obviously, on $3,000 a month of income. That's incredibly out of whack. Yeah, right? and, and plus you have to live. You've got to live somewhere in British Columbia, even if you're living outside of the Lower Mainland. Land, uh, you still have to eat, and da 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 da. I don't know. I don't need to tell you this. Oh no, it, <laughs> you know. we, we all know. Yeah, and and you know, we reviewed their budget, and the budgets weren't extravagant. So three thousand sure. of income that's coming in, fourteen hundred went to rent. Um, you know, we yeah. wish it was lower. We all do, and this was you know out out in the valley here, but still, that was reasonable for what they what they needed. Yeah, uh, you know, vehicle was a couple hundred dollars a month. Uh, groceries for two five hundred and fifty dollars a month, all very reasonable. Um, eating out was about one hundred and eighty dollars a month, and we find with seniors, this is something that it's they're social circle as well. This is the way mm-hmm. that they see people, see family. So sometimes it's the only way so seniors get out of the house. So sometimes we do see higher yeah. eating out costs, but 180 on 300 is not extreme. Um, you know, 75 for utilities, entertainment, grooming, and so on. So they were spending about $2,600 a month just to live. And out of $3,000 a month, they had 400 left over, which again, no money for debt. Right. So what they ended up doing is they sat down, we reviewed all of the options. They filed each a personal bankruptcy. And over the term of nine months, um, they were discharged from all of their debts. So okay. They didn't take it lightly. You know, they felt, um, you know, 
very sad that they weren't able to meet all of their obligations, but they were able to start again after nine months and focus on basically just living in the money that they have each month coming in the door. Okay, now, I, uh, pardon my ignorance on this mm-hmm. question, uh, but they both filed personal bankruptcy. Right. They couldn't do it as a couple? or no. You can't do that when you're filing bankruptcy? Very few joint bankruptcies happen because okay. if one person were to pass away or one person can't complete the bankruptcy, it becomes very complicated. So typically even couples would file two separate bankruptcies. Okay, so that's a s- standard procedure. Yeah. All right. Second one. Uh, uh, sing- is she a single woman, 69 years old? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So this was a, a case study. Margaret, again, names have been changed, but um, she was about 69 years old when she came to see us, was retired. Her debts were a lot less. She owed just under $27,000. Now, also, her income was less. She was earning just about $2,000 per month. Um, only assets were similar, some household furniture, a 2007 vehicle not worth a whole lot, and she retained all of her assets. Um, The circumstances that got her to us is she had been making minimum payments on credit cards and lines of credit, uh, but she found she wasn't paying down the balances at all. And that's what we find increasingly is people come to us and say, I've been doing the same payment for two or three years and I still owe the same amount of money. Exactly. And that's kind of by design. (laughs) A lot of these minimum payments do very little to actually chisel down the balance. Yeah. Um, her household expenses were quite low um, because she was living with family members who was only paying $500 a month in rent. And what we were able to work out with Margaret um, was that she could do a consumer proposal, which she was very excited to do. And now a bankruptcy would have been less expensive for her, but she really wanted to pay back the part of the debt that she could afford. So on her $27,000 of debt, we negotiated a consumer proposal for $9,000. So just one third of the debt, which is very much in the wheelhouse of what we do all the time on for proposals. For consumer proposals, yeah. And we found in her budget, she was able to make a payment of $150 a month. So she'd pay off that $9,000, no interest, all the fees are included, no one can bother her or do anything against her. And over a period of up to five years, she'd pay $150 per month. Now, the other piece that we haven't uh, talked about yet is, as in the case for uh, so many folks, the stress and anxiety that comes with being in this situation Mm -hmm. and then doing a consumer proposal with you and figuring it that they can do this and they can make manage this, it must have been a huge relief for her. It it was. And one of my colleagues was was working with Margaret on the day-to-day basis, and she gave me permission to share one of Margaret's emails. Uh, This was an email from Margaret to one of my colleagues, and it said, oh my goodness, I am in tears. And this is after we had just told her a proposal has been accepted. I cannot thank you enough. What a wonderful lady you are. And my colleague, Dana, definitely is. Uh, What do I need to do next? I'm just shaking. If I was there, I would give you a big hug. Thank you so much. Okay. so We get those all the time. (laughs) Which is just so, must be so gratifying. Yeah, it, it warms my heart every day, you know, just to, to get this type of validation that what we're doing is actually making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, so as a result, no stress for uh, Margaret anymore, and she's looking after a debt that she really wanted to look after. Exactly. Which is pretty great. So how did she get into this pickle? Well, it was really a, co- a bunch of factors all coming together. There were some car repairs, there were some dental expenses, there was a deductible for a car accident, which she assured me was not her fault, but she still got slammed with the deductible. Sure. Um, there was some medicine, there was a new mattress. Um, you know, it was very much just the things of life, just little unexpected things came up. And based on her $2,000 a month income, they had to go on credit. And unfortunately, that credit debt just continued to grow over time. Yeah, because none of this, I mean, even her trip to Ontario to see family that she hadn't seen in 20 years, mm-hmm. none of this stuff is extravagant by no. any means. Your dentist, you know, get, get repairing your car, depending on where you live, that's, that's the, your only way you're going to uh, mm-hmm. get out and about. 
That's such a great story. Mm-hmm. I think the most, or not, I don't know the most important thing, but it's just so important when, when you hear a story like this that we know that we're not alone. That's, That's got to right. be one of the biggest um, messages for folks. That's absolutely right. And if you want more information, if this resonates with you or you know somebody who's in a bit of a situation, uh, this is the phone number. It's 1-800-661-3030. You get a free consultation with Blair and his staff to figure out what to do and what the next steps are, as well as to find an office near you. Or if you want to go to their website first, it's sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.